Section number 13 of Marvels of Scientific Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Marvels of Scientific Invention by Thomas W. Corbin the most striking invention of recent times part two but to return to the question of resonance at first the distances over which messages could be sent were but small now a marconigram can be flung across a hemisphere at first little could be done by day work had to be done mainly at night now communication passes by day and night alike yet in principle and in many details the instruments are unaltered from what they were several years ago the main source of all this improvement is the use of resonance to enumerate broadly the apparatus used for the dispatch and receipt of messages the following list will be useful transmitting end one an antenna consisting of a number of wires raised to a considerable height above the ground two a spark gap consisting of a series of metal balls with gaps between them the outer ones being connected to the antenna and to the induction coil three a powerful induction coil with batteries or other source of current to work it four a telegraph key by which the induction coil can be started and stopped at will. Receiving end. 1. An antenna precisely similar to the other. 2. A coherer or other oscillation detector. 3. A receiving instrument which may be a writing telegraph instrument, a telephone, any of a number of ordinary telegraph instruments or a galvanometer transmitting and sending instruments are of course installed at both ends and either of them can be connected to the antenna at will by the simple movement of a switch the antenna plays part of one of the metal plates in the hertz oscillator early experiments were made with hertz apparatus but the range of such a contrivance is very limited for one thing it neglects to take advantage of the earth it is little realized what an important part the earth plays in the carrying of wireless messages a very great step was taken when marconi dispensed with one of the plates of hertz and used the earth instead while the other plate gave place to the elevated wires the most familiar part of the apparatus to most people the condenser is thus formed by the earth as one plate, the elevated wires as the other, and the intervening air as the insulator. The capacity must be exceedingly small in such an apparatus, but it is sufficient, while the long lines of electrical force stretching from the high antenna to the earth produce waves of great carrying power lastly when the earth forms a part of the condenser the waves cling to it so that instead of being largely dissipated into space they move along the surface of the earth 
the advantage of this is obvious at first it was customary to place the spark gap in the wire leading from the antenna to the earth as in the accompanying sketch later however it was found better to place the coil and spark gap in a local circuit in which the oscillations are first produced these oscillations pass through a coil which is interwound with another one connected to the antenna and to earth and thus the local oscillations as we might call them induce similar oscillations in the antenna just as the fluctuations in one part of an induction coil induce fluctuations in the other indeed the coil in the local circuit and the one in the antenna circuit actually constitute an induction coil the advantage of this is that by introducing condensers the capacity of which can be varied and coils of the inductance of which can be varied into the oscillation circuit it becomes possible to tune the circuits effectively thus resonance comes into play and the power expended can be made to produce the maximum effect some attempts have been made to displace the induction coil in wireless telegraphy altogether by a specially made dynamo these machines can produce either alternating or continuous currents in fact the alternating current dynamo is really simpler than the more familiar continuous current machine the difficulty is however to run it sufficiently fast to produce sufficiently rapid alternations nikola telsa made an alternator to give the alternating current dynamo its short title which could produce fifteen hundred alternations per second while mr w duddle made one which produced one hundred and twenty thousand but neither was satisfactory for the work in question could such a machine be made would it be invaluable for it would be apparent that a continuous succession of ways would be formed by it and not a succession of short trains of waves such as is produced by the induction coil and spark gap the difficulties are not electrical but mechanical it seems doubtful if a machine will ever be made to run with sufficient rapidity which would not knock itself to pieces in a very short time small alternators are used sometimes however to supply alternating current to the primary of an induction coil or transformer as it is more often called in larger sizes the interrupter is only needed when the primary current is continuous from batteries for example alternating current needs no interrupter and so that bother is removed the alternations of a hundred or so per second which are quite the common thing with alternators are just what is needed to excite an induction coil consequently small machines of this kind are to be found in many stations a danish inventor vladimir polson has adopted an altogether different method of producing electrical oscillations which method is the distinctive feature of his mode of telegraphy he 
takes advantage of a curious effect of passing current between two rods one of which is carbon so as to form an arc such as we see in arc lamps my readers are already familiar with the term shunt in connection with electrical matters and so will perceive at once what is meant when a second circuit is said to be arranged as a shunt to the arc the accompanying diagram will in any case make the matter clear the current comes along from the battery or continuous current dynamo to a hollow rod of copper which to prevent it being melted has cold water continually circulating inside it thence the current jumps across to a carbon rod forming an arc between the two rods and returns whence it came in its journey it traverses the coils of an electromagnet the poles of which are one each side of the arc this tends to blow the arc out as a puff of wind blows out a candle an effect which a magnet always has upon an electric arc the shunt consists of a wire leading from the copper to the carbon rod with a condenser and inductance coil inserted in it the latter coil also forms one part of that coil by which the oscillations in the local circuit are transferred to the antenna the electrical explanation of what happens when the current is turned on to an arrangement like this is rather too complex to set out here it depends upon a curious behavior of the arc it is really a conductor yet it does not behave as ordinary conductors do and the result is that the continuous current flowing through the arc is accompanied by an oscillating current in the shunt circuit and the important feature of the arrangement is that these oscillations are continuous in one long train not in a succession of trains the advantage of this has already been referred to one other feature of the apparatus just described should be mentioned since it will seem curious to the general reader for it to work properly it is necessary that the arc should be enclosed in a chamber filled with hydrogen or hydrocarbon gas coal gas is generally used hertz's original discovery was that small sparks could be seen to pass between the ends of a curved wire when the electric waves fell upon it such spark detectors as they are called are useful in the laboratory but not for practical telegraphy several people seem to have noticed in years gone by that a mass of loose metal fillings normally a very bad conductor of electricity became a much better conductor when an electrical discharge of some sort occurred nearby the demand for a wireless receiver had not then arisen however and so the discoveries were not followed up consequently it remained to be rediscovered by branley of paris in eighteen ninety he placed some metal filings in a glass tube the ends of which he closed with metal plugs lying loosely together the fillings would not conduct the current of a small battery from one plug 
to the other but when a spark occurred not far away they suddenly became conductive and allowed it to pass several years after this sir oliver lodge took up the idea as a receiver for wireless messages and believing that its action was due to the waves causing the filings to cling together he christened it coherer marconi succeeded in making a very delicate form of this although working on strictly the same lines the trouble with coherer is that when once it becomes conductive it remains so unless the filings be shaken apart Lodge therefore arranged for the tube to be continually struck by clockwork or by a mechanism like that of an electric bell. Marconi effected a further improvement by making the current passing through the coherer control the striking mechanism, so that the latter is normally quiet but administers one or two taps at just the right moment sir oliver lodge and dr muirhead devised another detector which though quite different in form is really much the same in principle a steel disc with a sharp knife-like edge is made to rotate above a vessel of mercury the edge just touches the mercury but no more on the top of the mercury there floats a thin layer of oil a bad conductor now as the disc revolves it picks up on its edge a film of oil which it carries down into the mercury the film adheres so tightly that it prevents the moving disc from actually touching the liquid metal thus under normal conditions the two are electrically insulated from each other by the film of oil and no current can pass from mercury to disc Oscillations, however, caused by incoming electric waves are able to break through the oil film and so bring disc and mercury into contact, whereupon the current flows. The constant movement of the disc restores the oil film as soon as the oscillations cease. The reason why these detectors act as they do is not quite understood one suggested explanation is that the oscillating currents heat the particles and so partially weld them together another is that adjacent particles become charged as the plates of a minute condenser and so are drawn tightly together as the plates in an electrostatic voltmeter are drawn towards each other supposing that the original non-conductivity of the loose fillings be due to the film of air which may surround them, either of these things would account for the film being broken or squeezed out, resulting in better contact and improved conducting power. But both suggestions seem to be contradicted by the fact that if the pieces in contact be of certain substances the coherer works the opposite way under those conditions the conductivity is normally good but the influence of the incoming waves causes it to become bad in eighteen ninety six professor rutherford now of manchester 
described some discoveries which he had made as to the magnetic effects of oscillations a simple little contrivance which he had constructed was operated by the discharge of a coil half a mile away at that time a great performance this detector was simply an electromagnet with a steel core instead of the usual soft iron core the reason the latter is used in the ordinary magnet is that it loses its magnetism the moment the current ceases to pass through the coil with which it is surrounded while a steel core retains its magnetism for most purposes a steel core would render an electromagnet useless but in this case it was desired that the core should be permanently magnetized so a current was first passed through the coil to magnetize the core and then the coil was connected to a simple form of antenna while swinging magnet was brought near so the magnetic power of the core would be indicated and any change made apparent the effect of the discharge half a mile away was to demagnetize the core slightly this was shown by the movement of the swinging magnet and so the first magnetic detector was found but here perhaps i ought to explain the use of the antenna at the receiving station its function at the sending end has already been made clear the electromagnetic waves coming from the distant transmitter strike the receiving antenna and in doing so set up in it oscillations such as those which set them in motion for every oscillation in the sending antenna there will be another similar in every respect except that it will be feebler in the receiving antenna and the oscillations are here led to the detector of whatever form it may be and in it they make their presence felt in some few cases a duddle thermogalvanometer has been employed as the detector in which the oscillating currents report themselves directly in coheres the detector works by causing the oscillating currents to control a continuous current from a battery and it is the latter which actually gives the signal but there are a number of extremely interesting means which have been invented to detect the oscillating currents by their heating effect r a fessenden for instance has perfected one which is a marvel of delicate workmanship he depends upon the heating of a wire by the currents passing through it such heating is the result of the electrical force acting against resistance and the difficulty is that if the resistance be great it will almost entirely kill the faint oscillating forces in the receiving antenna while if on the other hand it be small the rise in temperature will be inappreciable so he encloses a fine thread of platinum in a glass bulb from which the air is exhausted the platinum wire is first of all embedded in a wire of silver 
the silver wire is given a core of platinum in fact then the compound wire is drawn down until it is so thin that the platinum core is only one and a half thousandths of an inch in diameter a short length of this compound wire is then bent into an u-shaped loop and its ends connected to thicker wires finally the bottom of the loop is immersed in nitric acid which eats away the silver at that point and leaves the bare platinum this is produced a very short length a few millimeters of exceedingly thin platinum wire supported at its ends by comparatively thick wires being so short this wire does not offer much resistance and consequently does not materially check the oscillations at the same time since it is so fine it does offer some resistance and finally since what heat is generated will be in an exceedingly small space it will be appreciable there a telephone is arranged so that the current also passes through the fine wire and every slight variation in the temperature of the platinum wire by varying in its resistance varies the current through the telephone and exceedingly slight variations can be detected by sound in the telephone thus the oscillations generated in the antenna affect the heat in the wire that affects its resistance and that again affects the telephone which finally affects the ear of anyone who is listening to it it must be understood however that this is not a wireless telephone for the sounds heard are not articulate but merely long and short sounds representing the dots and dashes of the morse code electrolysis provides us with another form of detector an exceedingly small platinum wire forms one electrode and a large lead plate the other and both are immersed in dilute acid the passage of current from a local battery sets up electrolysis and so stops itself from forming a film of oxygen on the small electrode this film however is broken by the oscillating currents from the antenna so that as long as they are coming the battery can current can flow but as soon as they cease the battery current stops itself again thus the flowing and stopping of the oscillating currents is exactly copied by the current from the battery which current is led through a telephone or a sensitive galvanometer it may occur to readers to inquire why the oscillating currents are not passed direct to a galvanometer the answer is that because they are oscillating a very sensitive galvanometer is not possible true the duddle thermogalvanometer has been mentioned in this connection but although it is a beautiful instrument it cannot compare for delicacy with the direct current galvanometers the latter are easily a hundred thousand times more sensitive but the trouble can be overcome by rectifying the oscillating currents by passing them through a unidirectional conductor one 
that is, which passes current one way only. These remind one of a turnstile as installed at certain public places, which let you out, but will not let you in unless you pay. In fact, they will not let you in at all. In like matter, rectifiers will only allow those currents to pass which are flowing in one direction, and so they cut out every alternate oscillation, thus producing something very like continuous current, which can be detected by the very delicate galvometers which are usable when continuous currents are concerned, or more often by a telephone receiver. The rectifying conductors are in many cases crystals, hence these detectors are called crystal detectors. Carborundium is a favorite for this purpose. And that brings us to the important question of the secrecy of wireless communication and the measures taken to prevent confusion from the number of independent messages flying through the air at the same time. This can be largely achieved by the aid of resonance. Trains of waves flung out by one antenna may strike several other antennae, but unless the latter are in tune with the sending apparatus, they will probably not be affected appreciably. Let one of them, however, be in tune, and it will pick up easily the message which is not noticed by the others. It is as if three people watching a distant lamp were affected by a form of color blindness, which rendered them practically blind to all colors except one. Suppose one could see red only, the other blue, and the third yellow. A light sent through a blue glass, being robbed of all rays except the blue ones, would be visible only to the man who could see blue. The man who could see the blue would, in like manner, be quite blind to light sent through red or yellow glass. Each of them, in fact, could be signaled to quite independently of the others by simply sending him rays of the color to which his eyes were sensitive. In precisely the same way, each wireless receiver is or can be made most sensitive to waves of a particular length and practically blind to others. The operator can adjust his apparatus for certain prearranged wavelengths, and so he can communicate with secrecy to stations whose wavelength he knows. The change, of course, is made by altering the capacity or inductance, or both. The instruments can be so calibrated that it is quite easy to make the alteration. Then, antennae can be so constructed that messages can be received with most readiness from one particular direction. In others, they can be received from any direction, but the direction can be discovered. This, it will be easy to see, is of great value to ships in a fog. Antennae made with a short vertical part and a long horizontal part radiate best in the direction away from which their horizontal parts point. This is of great advantage in stations which are built specially to communicate with other particular stations. 
In such cases the antenna is carefully built so as to point in the required direction. Such antennae also receive more readily those signals which come from the direction away from which they are pointing. Reference has been made already to the interesting fact that wireless communication is easier at night than in the daytime. That is probably because of the ionization of the atmosphere by the action of sunlight. Along with visible sunlight there comes to us from the sun a quantity of light known as ultraviolet since it makes its effect known in the spectrum of sunlight beyond the violet, which is the limit of visibility at one end of the spectrum. We cannot see it, but it affects photographic plates powerfully. It has energetic chemical powers, and it has the ability to make the air more conductive than it is ordinarily. Comparatively little of it penetrates our atmosphere, but it must exercise a good deal of influence, a little higher up. Now readers will remember that the process by which electromagnetic waves are propagated is checked when the wave strikes a conductor. The energy in the waves is then employed in causing currents in the conductor instead of forming more waves, and so partially conductive air forms a partial barrier to the waves. The effect is not appreciable in the case of the tiny waves of light and heat, but it is in the case of the long wireless waves. Everyone has seen the waves of an advancing tide coming up a sandy beach, and has noticed how the dry sand, a good conductor of water, sucks up and destroys the foremost ripples. In like manner are the wireless waves sucked up by the partially conductive atmosphere, but the effect of the ultraviolet light does not last long, and so at night time it disappears. Therefore messages can be sent better at night than by day. For wireless telephony what is wanted is a continuous uninterrupted train of waves such as those from the Poulsen arc, and a receiver of the magnetic type. The coherer is no good for this purpose, since it either stops the current entirely or lets it flow copiously. The magnetic detectors, however, respond to the variations in the strength of the incoming waves. As the latter increase or decrease in strength, so does the magnetic detector give out stronger or weaker signals. So a telephone transmitter of the ordinary type is made to vary the strength of the oscillations at the sending end, while an ordinary telephone receiver is placed in series with the detector at the receiving end. Thus, every slight variation corresponding to sound waves spoken into the transmitter is reproduced in the receiver. It is strange that wireless telephony has not made greater progress, for it may be said, on the word of one of the greatest authorities, that wireless telephony is simpler and easier than telephony through a submarine cable. In the latter there are almost insuperable 
obstacles caused by the capacity and inductance of the circuit, while the, in the wireless method there is very little difficulty. There are, of course, several so-called systems of wireless telegraphy in use. There is the Marconi in Great Britain, the secret admiralty system in the British Navy, the deforest in the United States, the Telefunken in Germany, not to mention the promising Polston system, and there are still others, but it would be futile to attempt to explain how they differ from one another in a work like this. In principle, they are alike. The precise forms of instrument used may vary, but even there there is much in common between them. As time goes on, there will inevitably be a tendency to more and more uniformity. That is always the case, for some things are inherently better than others, and rival systems, although each is working along its own lines, always come to very much the same result in the end. Without making any comparisons, it is safe to say that if the Telefunken system, for example, has any points of superiority over the Marconi, the latter will sooner or later find out the fact, and will modify their apparatus accordingly. In all probability this will operate both ways, and some things which the German system is now using will give place to those which British have in operation. In another very modern industry this is very apparent. Having attended and carefully studied several annual exhibitions of flying machines, I have noticed with great interest how the varying types of a few years ago are merging into the more or less uniform types of today, and it has been the same with wireless telegraphy, and will be still more so in the future. The best means of generating the waves, and the best means of detecting them at a distance, that is the whole problem, and all the workers in it will sooner or later come to much the same conclusions as to which are the best ways. Patents may do a little to delay this, but not much. For one thing, patents only last a few years. For another, a patent only covers a particular way of doing a particular thing. A machine that is termed patent is often the subject of a hundred patents, each covering a particular little point. It is well nigh impossible to patent a whole machine. A general principle cannot be patented, only a particular application of that principle and so there are in a great many cases little variations of a patented method which are quite as good as the patented one, and which can be used freely. So even patents will not have much effect, in all probability, upon this unification process. But, however, that may be, there is no doubt that the whole world owes a deep debt of gratitude to the men who have worked out this most beneficent of inventions. It is difficult to think of a single one which has ever brought such a load of benefits 
to poor struggling humanity as this has the ship in distress the lighthouse man on his lonely islet the explorer in the polar regions the pioneer settler in the new lands in fact just those who most need some connecting link with their fellows are the people to whom the wireless telegraph brings aid and comfort all honor to the men who have done it end of section 13 recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc